We're in a series uh, this summer at Castle Oaks all about the parables of Jesus. Uh, it, we're calling it um, Hidden in Plain Sight because of the ideas that Jesus tries to get across. And, uh, and so this Sunday, we thought it would be appropriate for us to be thinking a little bit about the parable of the prodigal, the parable of the two lost sons It says there in your program, the prodigal son. But I like to think of it mostly of the parable of the overwhelming, unconditional, unbelievable love of God. And so I'm going to read it to you. If you want, you can just sit back and chill. You can close your eyes. You can just listen if you want. It's a version you may not have heard. Then Jesus said, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags, and left for a distant country. And there, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. And he was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs and the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses, and this is what he said. All those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God, and I've sinned before you, and I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up, and he went home to his dad. And when he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his heart pounding, he ran out, he embraced him and kissed him. The son started his speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve, I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't even listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and the sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast we're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead, and now he's alive. Given up for lost, and now he's found. And they began to have a wonderful time. All this time, the older son was out in the field, and when the day's work was done, he came in. As he approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. Calling over one of the houseboys, he asked what was going on. The houseboy told him, your brother came home. Your father has ordered a feast, barbecued beef because he has him home safe and sound. The older brother stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. His father came out and tried to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. The son said, look, how many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief, and have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? Then this son of yours, who has thrown away your money on horrors, shows up, and you all go out with a feast. His father said, son, you don't understand. You're with me all the time, and everything that is mine is yours. But this is a wonderful time, and we had to celebrate. This brother of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost, and he's found. So, Lord, this story that we read comes to us after centuries of time, and we pray that as we ponder these two sons and the love of a parent, 
that you would somehow reach into us, catch our attention, and draw our hearts to you. Lord, we're grateful for your mercy, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray, and we all say, amen. In the 1600s, there was a Dutch family in the Netherlands. Uh, They had many sons. One more son was born. He was the ninth kid in this family, and the family had this understanding that, you know, the of course, the firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, they were going to help the father with his business. By the time this ninth son was born, they decided he didn't need any more help with the family business, and so they sent him off to school. That young son turned out to be Rembrandt, and he became one of the most famous painters the world has ever seen. Rembrandt has this ability to take a subject and paint intense emotion, and he paints a nuanced emotion, and you can sit before his paintings and see things of beauty and wonder. On one side of your program is a painting that Rembrandt painted two years before his death. It's called The Return of the Prodigal. Back in the 80s, the 1980s, uh, there was a Dutch priest who has a a shared heritage with with Rembrandt. They, of course, come from the same people in the same land, and his name is uh, Henri Nouwen. We call him Henry, but... Those who know him from his land, they call him Henri. And he was a, a priest, an activist. He was in his 50s. He was accomplished. He had taught at Notre Dame. He had taught at Harvard. He had taught at Yale. And he was really at the, at the pinnacle of the top of his profession. He had an encounter with this painting that he writes about. And when he tells the story, he's tired. He's worn out. He's a little haggard. He's not sure if he can keep doing what he's doing, his work for God. Even though he's a priest, he knows that we all work for God. You could identify with his tiredness and his weariness. He was down a hallway in a facility, and on someone's door was a reproduction of the painting that you have in your hand. And he stopped. He'd never seen it before. He didn't know much about the works of Rembrandt. And he looked down at the the father's hands embracing this child, a haggard young man. And it caught him up short. He saw it, and he kind of had a gut check and kind of caught his breath, and he couldn't believe that his emotions would get the best of him in a place where, well, it's not time to show emotion. He was meeting some new people, visiting a friend. Just down a a hallway, this poster was on a door. But he watched the painting for a moment, and looked at the way these hands were reaching around the shoulders of the son. You can see it for yourself right there. And he wondered if anybody ever loved him like that. He didn't understand the context of the painting, nor the name of the painting. He asked the owner of that office where the door was, the poster on the door, what is this painting and and what's it from? She gave him a quick little synopsis, and then he returned to staring at it, pretty much completely ignoring all that was around him, and he could feel this pain welling deep upside in in with him, he was wondering, I wonder if anybody loves me like that. And so it sent him on a journey to understand this painting and and what it means. So if you take a look at the painting, you'll see that Rembrandt has, in the style of the 1600s, painted some images that were in some garb that we don't really wear anymore today, but what he imagines this scene looked like when Jesus told this parable. There's some people in the background, but there's only three people in the foreground of the painting. There's the dad, and 
There's the son who has come home, who's obviously in tattered clothes and in a bad way. Standing off to the side is another person as well. Well, that's the elder son, the oldest in the family. And he's looking on with this sense of disapproval. And What caught Henry Nowen in this picture was the depth of love that the dad has for the prodigal who has returned home. And so Nowen decided he needed to see this painting for himself. He discovered it was located and stored and displayed at a place in, well, one time was called Leningrad, now it's called St. Petersburg. And in 1984, 1985, he went to St. Petersburg to the Hermitage Museum. The curator of the museum met him there and allowed him to sit with the painting for hours on end. And so he went into the viewing room Tourists coming in and out all day long, but they set a chair off to the side for Henry to sit in. And he took his journal and sat there hour after hour after hour. The, the room has incredible light, lights that come in from windows up above. And as the sun moved across the sky during the day, the painting began to take shape and change and different parts would come forth. And now, the painting itself is about nine feet tall and six feet wide. It's a little bigger than the card you have in your hand. And those who see it, well, one artist, one curator says, uh, they are forgiven for thinking they have just seen the best and most impressive painting that exists in the world. Henry sat in front of it and began to ponder the depth of the love that God has for him. We all understand something about the prodigal son. We've all gone down roads we shouldn't go down, looking for things that we shouldn't have, taking things that don't belong to us, whether it is something of material or pleasure or maybe our ego gets in the way and we allow ourselves to go down paths that satisfy the immediate pleasures and the things that give us what we want when we want them. And that is the life of the prodigal. He decides that he tells his dad, I, I want your inheritance. Now, this is tantamount to saying to the dad, in essence, I want what you would give me if you were what? Dead. And so I want it now. In other words, the son is saying to his father, you are dead to me. And I want what isn't mine. I want what I have not worked for. And I want you to give it to me freely. And the dad in the story does so. He apportions his estate, some to the younger son, some to the older son. The older son would have been given a higher proportion, probably two-thirds. The younger son, one-third. And then a few days later, I'm sure he didn't think the old man would call his bluff. He took everything that he had and made off for a distant country. We understand the sins of the younger son. We understand them because we see them around us and they're obvious. And the, the works of the flesh, oh, you, you read one translation, uh, debauchery. I don't know when the last time you used the word debauchery in a sentence. And I mean, you probably don't even know what it is, but you don't even have to know to know it's probably not a good thing just from the way it sounds. But this is how he lives. And he decides to spend it on anything and everything that will give him what he wants and what he wants now what will make him feel good without the work. He's tired of being under his father's thumb. He sees what the world has to offer, and he takes it. The beautiful 
portrait that Rembrandt paints captures this moment in the parable when the younger son returns. This morning, you're going to have an invitation issued to you, and you're going to be able to accept it or stonewall it or ponder it or maybe hold it for a while and leave it right in front of you. That invitation is going to be manyfold. The first one is from the younger son. The invitation is to leave that which you can have, giving you what you want for now, for something else that you want to reserve, your priorities, your values, trading them upside down for what matters most forever. The younger son decides he will return home, not because he loves his dad, not because he knows he's wrong, not because he doesn't want to be doing what he's doing anymore. He returns home because he's out of money and because he's tired of starving. And as he does so, he begins to make his way down the road toward his father's estate. And the most beautiful statement in the parable, when you read it again, and it's almost the same in every translation, is this. While he was a long way off. See, the son had prepared a speech. He wanted his dad to know he was sorry, and whether he was or not, I don't know. Maybe he was just sorry that he was in the state that he was in. Maybe he was just sorry that he was out of money, but he's ready to go at least be a servant. In fact, he says, I'm not even worthy to be a son again. And so he begins to make his way home. But while he was, Jesus says, a long way off, what does the dad not know right now? Well, the dad doesn't know if his son understands what he did was wrong. His dad didn't know that at all. His dad doesn't even know what his son did. His dad doesn't know if his heart is sorry or if he is contrite. His dad doesn't know if he'll promise to never do it again. None of these things are a part of the father's love. All the dad knows is my son was gone, and now he's coming home. And so he runs which would have been a pretty undignified thing for a, an old Jewish man to do. He would have had to pick up his garments above his knees. He's got a long cloak on. He's not a working man. He's got people to do the work for him. But he does so, and in his sandals runs down the dirt road, throws his arms around his son, kisses him, and welcomes him home. Here's a little detail about the Jewish life and what this meant for the young son and what it meant for the older son. When the younger son was welcomed home, when the ring was put on his finger, when the animal was killed and the party was thrown, the dad was saying, I welcome you back into the family. Not only do I welcome you back into the family, but I welcome you back into the inheritance of the family. In other words, the two-thirds that was set aside for your older brother, that was set aside for his future, for when I'm dead, now we're going to split that up again and you get another pile. In fact, most Jewish people who understand the inheritance and how it works in the Jewish laws and Jewish family, they would have quickly understood that once the younger son is welcomed back on the very next day, he could have, if he wanted, asked for another third and taken that with him. Now, I wonder what Jesus' story would have been like if that would have been the case. And so your invitation for some of us is to leave behind that which we know will give us what we want right now, whether it's uh, satisfying an ego, deciding our values are in need of rearranging, investing in what we know 
love and mercy and grace that will last forever. That's part of the invitation. But like I said, the sins of the younger son, they're obvious, and everybody knows them, and we see them. They're on the list of things you weren't supposed to do if you grew up in church. They're on the list of things that you know you should leave behind, but we embrace them because, well, we want our inheritance now, and that's the younger son. If you look at your picture, it's an interesting picture in this way. There's no center of the subject. When Rembrandt painted it, he left the middle empty, and he did so so that you would be drawn to the two images in the picture. Not equally, it's a little weighted to the left, if you will, but you will quickly notice that the center is left open. I think Rembrandt wants us to feel the tension between the two brothers, between their two ways of life, between the way that they experience God or, as Jesus would say it, their dad. Rembrandt knows a little something about both of these states, he had lived a life where he understood what it meant to be the son that was cast aside or the prodigal or somebody that's made some choices about life and pleasure that he wants now. But he also knew something about what it meant to be the older son. The older son in the story that Jesus tells is vengeful. He's bitter. He's resentful. And he is angry. And he doesn't even want to participate in the party. And when you look to the right and see the posture of the older son with his hands crossed and his eyes downcast, you can see very clearly exactly what Rembrandt wanted us to see and feel. When Nouwen was sitting in front of this painting in the hermitage in Russia, and the light began to cross the room, later in the day he noticed the image of the older son. And he would never have thought that he would have had Oh, a vengeful heart or a, a heart that says, I haven't gotten what I have deserved. He didn't feel entitled, but as the day wore on, God began to whisper him places in his life where he began to feel resentful about who he was and who others were, all the things that he had done well and the things that had caused his life to not go the way he wanted. At first, early in the day, he identified with the younger son, but now he's beginning to pay attention to the older son, and he begins to feel those very things. If you've grown up in church, if you've been a part of faith a lot of your life, then maybe the older son is who you identify with even more. Maybe your sins are not the sins that are listed among all the vice lists in the New Testament or the vice list that your church growing up decided shouldn't be a part of a good Christian's life. Maybe your vices are the ones that are more understated, like an undergirding of anger, a sense of entitlement. Maybe it is bitterness. Maybe there is resentment about the way you thought your life would go and it hasn't quite turned out. What Rembrandt does with the painting is fascinating. What he does is he puts together these two people, these two sons in this scene. And this scene doesn't occur in the story that Jesus tells, not at all. In fact, the encounter that the dad has with the prodigal returning home, the older son's nowhere to be seen. But Rembrandt wanted to conflate their ideas, their stories, their personalities. He wanted you to see both at the same time so that you would feel the tension Odds are most of us feel the tension between those two things, who the older son was and the ways that we've wandered and chased after things that we want. 
and a sense of who the older son is in the way that we feel resentful and bitter and angry. Well, it comes up in a thousand different ways. Somebody gets what they don't deserve. Somebody who we would like to at least control a little bit doesn't do what we want them to do, whether it's somebody in the car next to us or somebody in our own family. And the resentful feeling wells up entitlement and self-righteousness. Well, you can hear it in the voice of the older brother when he says, I have done everything right and you haven't given me one thing. Well, the story really isn't about the two sons. The story is about a moment in time when God's love trumps the behavior of the wanderer and the behavior or mindset or heart of the resentful young, young man, the older brother. And in that moment, Jesus uses his own words to describe God's love. And this is what he says. My son, you and I are always together, and everything I have is yours. And so another invitation that you're being beckoned to is the invitation to set down your resentment, to set down your anger, and to allow the overwhelming, unconditional, unimaginable scope of God's love to soften your heart again. Resentment is too big of a burden to carry. Entitlement, well, we know we don't deserve it. Experiencing God's love in the depth of this way is the only thing that can soften a heart. Well, at that moment, as I said, Henry Nowen was at the height of his career. He was on staff, uh, faculty at Harvard. He had come from Yale. He spent his early years at Notre Dame. He was who's who among those who teach and actually do all kinds of things across the country in terms of social activism. If you were in the Catholic tradition, you knew his name and you had read his books and his prowess was known by everyone. The place where he was experiencing this moment with this poster where he was caught up short by seeing the gentle love of a father wondering, does God love him that much? He was visiting a friend at a place called Larsh. It's a Dutch origin. It's a facility that has organizations all over the world, and they take care of and develop the gifts and the capacity of people who have mental, emotional, intellectual disabilities. And it would be less than two years that Henry now would find himself, once he was convinced of the depth of God's love, he decided to quit striving in his career, to quit pushing, to quit trying to make a name for himself, and instead left Yale, left Harvard, left academia, and became a house parent and pastor at one of these facilities. And when he did so, he began a journey where he was accepted, not because of who he was or his credentials, not because of his accomplishments or the books that he had written, but only because these, who we often call less than in our culture, showed him a love and acceptance just because he was there. And so for some of you, the invitation is from success and significance to a place of service and love in your life. You've built an amazing career. Maybe you've built an amazing portfolio. Maybe you have accomplished so much in your life, and yet you still feel pulled 
towards something deeper, towards something more significant, maybe to some place where you aren't accepted for what you accomplish or what you do, but for the way that you love and the way that you relate to people and the way you express the mercy of God. It would only be later in his life that he would experience this. Henry Nouwen was 50 years old when he encountered this painting. He would be in his late 50s before he would talk about the transformational moment where he saw Rembrandt's painting. It was in the 80s and 90s when Nouwen experienced this. It was in the 1600s when Rembrandt painted this painting, two years before his death. But it was centuries before that Jesus told this story. And here we are in 2022 relating that very same parable to you. And the question to you, the invitation to you, is to welcome and experience the depth of God's love that goes beyond what you could ever ask or dream or imagine. And so let me lead you through a prayer time that will help us put our arms around this and grasp the depth of it. And as I do, I'm going to ask a few questions, and you can kind of answer them to yourself. You can use them to pray and seek God. And as we do that, my hope is that you will feel in this open-air sanctuary the presence of God's love and mercy, maybe in a way that you haven't in a long time. Let's pray together. Lord, there's some of us right now within earshot of this sound system that have spent a long time wandering and pushing you away, keeping you at arm's length. And so we're not that different from this younger son, this prodigal. We believe that uh, life is made of what you can make it, and so we have been grabbing for what we can. And for some of us, that has meant uh, career, pleasure, things in the now. We believe that we need to make our own way. But Lord, every one of us is made with your thumbprints on us. As Solomon said, you have planted eternity in our hearts. And so this moment where this uh, Dutch priest happens to see this painting, he sees this, this piece of art and he wonders, does God love me like that? Well, Lord, if a Dutch priest can spend years and understanding who you are and teaching who you are to others, and in that moment as a 50-year-old man unsure of your love for him, then I bet many of us are quite unsure as well. Or some of us are uh, unsure of your love because of the things that have happened in our lives. And so we think a loving God would never let that occur. Some of us have tried to walk the path of uh, church life and church stuff for a while, and we've been hurt, we've been betrayed, we've been ignored, we've been unforgiven. Lord, our hope and our prayer in this moment is that you would draw us back the same way you did the prodigal. Lord, may we not have to end up in a place where we're face down in a pig pen, Lord, your love and mercy is all around us. We feel it today in this warm breeze, the beautiful sunshine, the trees around us. Your creation testifies to your goodness. 
and we have hardened our hearts against it because we do not want to surrender to your love. So Lord, use whatever circumstances you have to to soften our hearts. Draw us back to you. Lord, there's some among us that, well, we believe that we've done all the right things, and yet still, life hasn't quite worked out the way we had hoped. We said yes to you. We've painted by the numbers. We've obeyed. And our hearts have been hardened against that obedience because we have used it as a tool, a lever, to make you do the things that we want. And so what has built up in our hearts is a a sense of duty, obligation, and a resentfulness that keeps us distant from you. And so, Lord, we want our hearts to be softened. Lord, I think it's no mistake that Jesus left this parable open-ended. We don't know if the older son made his way back in to the party or if he stomped off to find himself ostracized and alone and distant from everyone. But, Lord, we want to know you. We want to be drawn to you. And we want to experience your love and mercy. So right now in the the beauty of this place, God is inviting each of us, each one of us, to respond to his invitation of love, his love that is larger than you could have ever imagined, his love that goes beyond your most grave sin, even the most resentful heart, his love is there. This story isn't about the sin of a younger son or the hard-heartedness of the older son. It's about the mercy of God. And so God, through Jesus, began to speak these words while he was yet a long way off. The compassion of the dad overwhelmed him and he ran to meet his son. And to those of us bitter, stone-hearted, God says to us, we've always been together. Everything I have is yours. Lord, in this painting, we see this historical truth that your love is present, that it calls to those who read these words of Jesus every century since. And so through time, you reach down into this moment for each one of us to express your love for us. And so we surrender to you now. There are many right here willing to accept this invitation of change and surrender. We ask that you would draw us to you through the power of your love. We ask this in the name of Jesus. We all say together.